Dateline, the future. Humankind stretches out to the stars. Maybe they go on generation ships. Maybe they live on space stations. Maybe terraforming bases dominate the worlds of tomorrow. In these hostile places, only two things seem certain. With people come conflicts. And in manufactured environments, the wrong kind of conflict will damage your air supply. So forget regular guns, needle lasers, ray guns, and anything else that can screw up your habitat. I want stories where the violence and conflict depend on ingeniously adapting ancient weapons to future environments, where this technological shift solves old social problems and creates new ones, and where cultures and religions arise around those weapons and provide them contexts, both accepted and outlaw, within their societies. Give me swashbucklers, knife fighters, booby trappers, baton wielders, pirates, mafiosos, Robin Hoods, cops, priests, robbers, fugitives, and assassins. Give me swords in space. This is a paying market. Submit your story to editor at everydaynovelist.com. Be sure to use the phrase swords in space in the subject line. 8,000 words maximum, 2,000 words minimum. See you on the slush pile. Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 1007. Today we hear from Don, who asks, How do you work through personal or intellectual issues in writing without letting it take over? Um, I don't know if my answer is going to be applicable to everybody, but I'll tell you how I do it, because I do it all the time. There's two basic ways to um, that I've seen writers do this. I uh, okay. Let me rephrase. I am going to interpret without letting it take over as letting it devolve into a polemic. So a polemic is a speech or a story or an essay where you are aggressively and sometimes unfairly advancing your point of view. It's a way of preaching. That's why some films and books are uncomfortably preachy, because the people who are writing them are writing polemics disguised as fiction. Sometimes this can work, especially when it's satire. Satire is a polemical genre. Some of the classics of satire are Gulliver's Travels, A Modest Proposal, The Screwtape Letters, Um, Mark Twain's Letters from the Earth, which the Screwtape Letters was riffing on. Satire is the genre for polemic. Straight fiction is not a genre that's friendly to polemic. In fact, polemic tends to kill straight fiction. Oh, uh, uh, Candide by Voltaire is another great example of polemical satire. A good polemical satire is one that you can read, disagree with every single point being made, and still come out on the other side thinking that was a brilliant experience. A straight-ahead polemic in fiction doesn't work because it doesn't give you that sense. The 
irony that makes satire work is not present in polemical fiction. And without that irony, you cannot get the engagement of people who aren't already in your choir, which is a mistake a lot of authors make. Preaching to the choir is bad juju. Doesn't work. At least doesn't work very well or very often. So, instead, the other way you do it is exploratory. You may have an opinion. Your opinion may come through, but it is not unfairly rendered. It's not uncritically rendered. I do a lot of this. The Suave Rob books, among other things, are my explorations of um, toxic masculinity and what makes those traits toxic versus productive. And a lot of Suave Rob's character arc is discovering how to master his masculinity. Down from 10 is my exploration of my feelings about the death of God and the death of liberalism. Now, people who read that book don't come away with, oh, it's a treatise on the death of God and the death of the liberal world order. No, because that wasn't the point. The point was not to preach about, here is how we handle the death of God and the death of liberalism. It was me working through the grief I had from experiencing the death of God and seeing the death of liberalism on the horizon, and also the feelings at the same time of, in the wake of these personal, tra what for me were great personal tragedies, the sense of falling in love with new things and new people and discovering that there is fertility that emerges from the ashes. Kinky? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that, like the end of a winter, there's a new spring. After every death, there's a new life. He Ain't Heavy is me exploring the idea of friendship and sacrifice and what it might really mean when it's pushed to its extreme. These aren't books where I'm trying to make a point, where I'm trying to convince the audience that my conclusions about these ideas are right. In many cases, writing the book was a way for me to come to the conclusions that I eventually came to. Some of them, they're still open questions for me. But what makes a book like that work, there's tons of them. Uh, Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco is a book like this. Lord of the Rings is a book like this. Many of the great classics are books like this. Some notable exceptions are like um, A Christmas Carol is actually polemical fiction. One of those weird examples of polemical fiction that works well, but it works well because it's, um, it, it's written as a parable. I guess that's the parables are the other genre of polemical fiction that works. Mm. The literature that survives tends to be one of three one of four types, the fourth type being the most rare. The first is the polemic satire or parable. The second is the exploratory book. Uh, I guess the first would be the polemical satire, the second would be the polemical parable, the third would be this, the exploratory book, and the fourth is the adventure story. And the adventure story doesn't survive contra to what you hear a lot of folks in the um, in what's now being called the superversive community, the we want the golden age of science fiction back folks. Um, contrary to what they say, that sort of fiction doesn't survive and resonate because it's just good entertainment. It survives and resonates because it touches on 
ancient mythopoetic forms that are tied to the structure of human life. And so they're instantly relatable to everybody. So when they are done just right, they capture something about the human spirit that is timeless. The fact that they're entertaining helps them uh, get an audience. But a lot of stuff gets a big audience and then just flashes right away. Stuff that's entertaining and flashes away is stuff that captures a moment in time or is simply really good entertainment. The stuff that has that pop art quality that lasts is the stuff that captures something important about the human spirit. And that's why, say for example, the Golden Age of science fiction had so many writers whose work lasted so well, despite how dated some of their attitudes say about sex or gender roles or race are today. The reason that so many of those uh, writers had books, and it's not just uh, not just golden age science fiction, but that same age of uh, crime fiction, same thing. The reason it lasted so well is that it was written by a generation of writers who were schooled in the classics, who lived through the Depression, who lived through one or two world wars, who had, because they couldn't avoid it, had a really good bead on what the human spirit looked like, on what it was that people latch on to when they're in the extremes of despair and danger. And they brought that, not consciously, just by virtue of who they were and how they'd lived, they brought that to their fiction, and there's a zest for life in it, because they had spent their lives facing death, one way or another. And that's something that is much less common in the follow-up generation. The new wave science fiction writers and the later boomers who were responsible for the great growth in fantasy literature in the 80s. Very little of that has that kind of timeless quality, even though in many cases, in most cases, it's much more competently written. They're much more literarily sophisticated. The technical skill on display in the new wave writers and some of the, and even contemporary writers, is much higher than most of what you see in the stuff written in the 30s and 40s. And of course, you would expect that because there's been two or three generations of more innovations in literary techniques and style. But the people who grew up in the long piece have very rarely faced death, poverty, destruction straight on. And certainly not as a normal part of life. We all view it, most of us who haven't been through hell anyway, view it as um, optional somehow. We go to fiction in order to experience those things because we don't experience them in real life. But uh, it does mean that literary quality... Artistic quality is not exactly commensurate with the longevity or resonance of a story. Longevity and resonance come from tapping into the vital parts of the human spirit, and people who have lived comfortable lives have difficulty doing that. Now, for those of you who have not had comfortable lives, this is great news, because it means if you can work through your emotional baggage well enough that you can tell stories, create good theory of mind, as I talked to, talked about in a previous episode, and stuff like that, you're in a really good position to create very resonant stories. For those of you who have lived comfortable lives, who have not faced hunger and poverty, who 
have spent your lives in the suburbs and in the system, the best thing you can do for your art is not to do your art. It's to go out and get some really difficult experiences under your belt. Go live on the street for a while, recreationally. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously you'll know you've got somewhere to go home to if things get really bad, but try not to do that. Go uh, try to get a summer working on a ranch. Get in with the working class. Get involved with parts of life where life and death are on the line every day. There's a lot of parts of our you can see you can see a lot of it if you watch the show Dirty Jobs. There's a lot of parts of our civilization that still depend on and probably always will people risking their lives every day in order for you to be safe and comfortable. Now, they get paid very well for it, but they're still doing that. Getting yourself into those positions where you face privation and risk will put you in touch with parts of the human spirit that you didn't know were there. And it may be the best possible thing you can do for your writing's longevity. My two cents. Hope it's helpful. And I'll see you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. Join the conversation. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.